Before we start today's episode, I wanted to cut in with a quick announcement. If you like this podcast, we want to make sure you know about our weekly Ed Surge podcast newsletter. It's pretty new. We just started it earlier in the year, and it is the best way to keep up with what we're doing and to get bonus information about every topic that we dive into. It's free and it is simple to join. Just go to edsurge.com and click on the word newsletter at the top right. That's edsurge.com, click on newsletter, and join our EdSurge podcast newsletter. As always, thanks for listening. And now, let's get to this week's show. Tiny Roomba-looking robot with a tablet of sorts on top. Last week brought one of those surprise new gadget announcements from a tech giant. By day, it's a cute little helper. But when you're not around, it turns into a roving security robot keeping an eye on everything. Kind of like an Alexa on wheels that can follow you around the house. So instead of yelling for the weather across the room, you can just talk to the little gadget, a a robot with eyes by your feet. Amazon unveiled a home robot it's calling Astro and sparked some gee whiz coverage in the tech press. And a little cup holder. So you can literally tell Alexa to hold your beer. Not exactly the Jetsons, but still maybe a step forward for home monitoring technology. You can kind of hear these commentators straining to figure out what the actual application of this rolling camera and small screen is. But it's a reminder that robots are not the stuff of science fiction anymore. They're here. And that got me thinking. What could the rise of low-cost robots mean for education? Hello and welcome to the EdSurge Podcast where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, the managing editor of EdSurge. So as I looked around for smart people who were thinking about robots in education, I found a book that I'd sort of missed when it was released in 2019. And it gets at this very question I was curious about. The book is called Should Robots Replace Teachers? by Neil Selwyn. He is a research professor at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. And it turns out, Neil has been paying close attention to the news about Amazon's robot, too. And sure enough, he has some thoughts on why all this gadgetry could matter for educators. And not necessarily in a positive way, depending on how these robots end up being used. So I connected with Neil, via Zoom, of course. He was in his home office down in Australia. And he offered an educator's perspective on robotics and automation in teaching. And he argues that the educator viewpoint, it's too often missing from Silicon Valley pitches about these new tech breakthroughs. Oh, and at the end of our talk, he issued a challenge for those in edtech about the type of disruptive tech he'd like to see as someone who actually teaches students. Now, here's our conversation. I love the title, by the way, Should Robots Replace Teachers? I think different parts of our audience are going to have very different feelings about that question. Because in one sense, it's like, should robots replace teachers? As if it's like, you know, should why not? I don't think you meant it that way. But maybe there's a group in Silicon Valley or something that would have that attitude. And then other people that might think even asking that question is somehow, you know, uh, just really taboo. Um, I wondered, is that what you were going for a little bit with your with your wording there? If I'm being honest, 
um, the title was actually pitched to me by the publishers. It wasn't my idea. And I thought it was a dreadful title. I was very sniffy about it. And I spent the first few months trying to write a kind of disclaimer at the beginning saying, you know, clearly this is a stupid question. But the more I thought about it, it's actually a really neat question because the question could be, could robots replace teachers? And I think the answer is yes, they could. Um, but the answer should introduce this idea of it's a value. It's a, it's a question. It's about the values that we have. And technically, we could do this thing. Should we be doing it? And if so, how, what flavour do we want? So I quite liked it in a way. So it's a little bit provocative. And it was obviously the publishers thought it would sell more copy that way. But it's actually a really interesting question. The technology's here. In theory, it could happen. But what do we want to happen? And it kind of pushes the onus back onto us as humans, but also the agency back on. This is We've got control over this. Let's have a conversation. Let's have a kind of debate. It's not a clear-cut kind of yes and no answer. There's also... Um you know, a way in which, as you point out with some of the examples in your book, um, it may not be as crazy a question or as sci-fi, say, of a question as people might think. Um, So what's really interesting about the word robot is we always think about physical robots. We always think about, you know, Alexa, or we were talking earlier about Amazon's new Astro robot. Physical robots are in schools, but there's a few thousand of them. What's really interesting to think about the software robots and AI and automated decision making and all the kind of automated processes that take place that we don't see physically that are in all of the kind of technologies that we use in education these days. But the idea of a physical robot in front of you kind of is a bit of a kind of uh, makes you think, pulls you up a bit sharp, but gets you thinking about questions that you should be asking about any type of technology whether it's physical or whether it's software. It's sort of two different avenues to explore. One is is AI, really. A lot of, of the kind of technologies we all live with, and including in education, tools that have become more and more commonplace. And then there's the and then there is the instance of robots that are physical. I did want to ask you about Amazon's new robot that just was announced last week. I think it is called Astro, if I remember correctly. It's like more than $1,000. seems like, you know, kind of an echo on wheels. Um, I'm sure, you know, it seems still like an early days of this particular technology. But Amazon has certainly had things catch fire in the past. And it the idea of them starting a home rolling robot in category even does seem like uh, it seems like a touchstone to me um what was your reaction and what what do you think that says about about you know kind of how far we are from robots in in various settings that people had yeah. seen before yeah we're certainly having a kind of physical robot moment uh <laughs> recently and i think a lot of this is do with the pandemic actually I, there's a lot of excitement about using physical robots to do um, menial work i think white castle have got a hamburger cooking robot that they introduced last year we're trying to get robots in europe to do fruit picking and all the other low-paid work that now we're having trouble filling so it's not just amazon amazon's astro is really funny i mean a lot of the tech people that i read are just completely underwhelmed by this They're, why are we doing it? what's the problem here why do we need this i listened to the amazon tech folk talking about why they did it and they said they sat down in a room and they just all said to each other will we have robots in 10 years time they all agreed that they would or we would and they figured why don't we go and build one so in a way it's a little bit of a kind of a technology in search of a use in search of a problem i think it's really interesting 
they're very keen to promote it as more than Alexa on wheels or Echo on wheels, precisely because I think it is Alexa on wheels. But it brings together the, you know, the kind of Echo personal smart assistant technology, which has been super popular, which a lot of people didn't realize was going to happen. Also with their kind of home security um, uh, kind of systems, Amazon Ring. I mean, Google have got one called Nest and there's this kind of smart camera smart doorbell company so the two things are coming together and what i think is really interesting about um astro i doubt it will take off um you and i can't buy it it's only been kind of just really fed out in a beta version but it's a great example of i think how this technology is coming into settings like the home or you could say the school or the university and fulfills some very specific kind of purposes. So I think the main thing about Astro is home security. That's how it's going to sell. People are going to want this thing to go around and kind of extenuate the Amazon Ring um, capabilities of the you know, facial recognition, cameras. So it's about surveillance and home security. But the surveillance aspect is really interesting because as soon as you start generating data and taking photographs of you, if you press on my doorbell and come into my house, all of a sudden I'm, there's a whole bunch of privacy issues there. And then there's the wider question of what data is actually being generated by this system. Amazon, I'm sure, are going to love to have a whole bunch of data about you and your home and what's in your home and what possibly could be in your home if they sold it to you. So there's all that stuff as well. That's a good question to think about. And the other really interesting thing about the, the rollout last week of the Astro robot is the way that it actually kind of highlighted the amount of human effort and human work that you have to put in to make this thing work. There was a great quote from a, a piece last week by a guy called Rodney Brooks who said, ask not what your AI system can do for you, but instead what it's tricked you into doing for it. And if you look at how Astro was being sold, oh, it can bring a beer to you, you can give a beer to your friend and you put the beer can into Astro, it trundles over and then your friend picks the beer can out. Humans are doing the work there. I could have just passed it across the room and a lot of this technology actually involves a lot of human work around the around the kind of edges behind the scenes to make this stuff work you have to make sure that your floor is completely clear astro can't clear stuff out of the way it hasn't got any arms or hands it's just this kind of very kind of dumb technology and it kind of in a way is a really good example of of the the software in our lives it does it can do very specific work we talk about narrow ai that's focused on a very specific task but this idea of kind of general artificial intelligence that's going to be as intelligent as you and i and you know that's a lifetime away but so it, it kind of points out the frailties and the limits of this technology and also the big question so what why do we need this? What was the problem that we couldn't do that this thing's suddenly solving? And it's very difficult to see with Astro. One of the things that really struck me about, you know, seeing the Astro prototype too was, um, you know, even if it stays as a small example, it, it certainly, there are others that are already out there, as your book points out, some of which have been tried in classrooms, in K-12 and in some college settings. I guess I'm curious, um, could you give an example of one that you talked about in your book of like something that has been tried in an educational setting where it is a physical robot, where it is like something um, that people are kind of trying to say like, well, let's roll this into a classroom environment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's before I talk about what's going on in classrooms, it's interesting to think that the most successful robot that's ever been sold is the Roomba 
vacuum cleaners. I think they claim about 30 million of those have been sold. So that's kind of the robots that we're talking about here. But in education, there's been a, a kind of 20 years of interest in having physical robots in the classroom. One of the kind of the notorious ones in the 2000s was this Japanese robot called Saya, S-A-Y-A, um, which was this very authoritarian kind of robot that stood at the front of the class and barked out orders and was all about classroom control and direct instruction. Looked terrifying. That was a really good example of what we call Wizard of Oz. There was a person behind the scenes basically typing on a laptop and and a teacher kind of controlling it. So, I mean, that's just like a mannequin. You may as well just have a puppet in a classroom. It doesn't and it doesn't cut down on staff either because somebody had to staff it. Absolutely. And there was another five people around it making sure the thing didn't break down. Some of the more interesting robots, though, that are actually being used um, are what's called social robots. And so these are what um, roboticists refer to as care receiving as opposed to caregiving. Um, so SoftBank have a robot called um, Nao, N-A-O. There was one called Pepper a few years ago that's kind of um, fallen out of favor. Um, others are called Casper. There's a, there's a seal called Pero. And these are robots that students interact with. And, and, and often um, it's like a less able peer. The students have to kind of teach the robot to do things. And, and it's the Seymour paper idea that you learn by kind of teaching a technology to do something. Um, so it's, it kind of goes back to 1980s social constructivist kind of theories of, of learning. And these technologies work very well, particularly with younger students, often with students who have autism, for example. And it's just another thing that you can have in the classroom that just kind of sparks a bit of interaction and kind of collaborative learning and all the kind of learning that we know can work well in those sorts of classrooms. But at the end of the day, that's not a teacher robot. That's a kind of less able peer robot. So robot, physical robots have their place, but that's the niche that they've kind of found so far. Flipping it over and having a kind of a super intelligent um, kind of pedagogue, a kind of professor robot is miles away. The most useful things we have in that sort of sense are what's called telepresence robots. And they're literally iPads on wheels. So you can actually have a, a stand, six meter, a six foot stand with an iPad with your face on it. And you can beam yourself in and talk to your class. And it actually works very well for students who can't physically be in class because of maybe health issues or other other issues. They can have a physical presence in the classroom. But it is literally an iPad and a, and a kind of Zoom conversation on a stick. So it's interesting to see what robots are actually taking place in, in, in education. And as I said, it's kind of primary school, elementary school and particular types of students. So I can't see this stuff coming into higher education for decades, if not centuries. Now, um, as you point out, though, so that's the physical robot and where the Roombas still rule. But there is so much that's already happening in the classroom and that the pandemic has really seen expand that is software robot, which in other words, you might even some people wouldn't even call it robot, but that is software driven. And that's very AI ish when you and if you do think about it, you're like, oh, actually, that is kind of like what people think about with robots. There's just no physical you know, humanoid um, plastic. So what, you know, what do you think is, I, I guess, first off, like, do you think that people maybe don't even, aren't even aware of how much these are already in today's classrooms? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, the main, we talk about AI and AI is such a kind of general catch-all term and it refers to 101 different things. For me, the most interesting element of AI is automated decision-making. So it's when decisions are kind of, defer to an algorithm and the software will make a decision based on input data. So, I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about here. And the most um, 
a kind of widespread AI is the stuff or the widespread automated decision making is the stuff we don't even realize, as you say. So um, spell checkers, for example, or Google search algorithms is, is an example of this. That you know, Google is searching through the uh, online information and saying these are the things that actually relate most to your search query. And that's making a decision. But we don't think of that as AI very generally. And so in a lot of the educational software that we use, these automated decisions are being made um, by very narrow forms of AI. And often you, you, you won't see it as a particular, um, you know, kind of creepy or scary or exciting thing. It's just part of what the software does. So it's interesting to think about what kind of software are in our classrooms now that do this. Perhaps the most obvious are the personalized learning systems, the kind of learning recommender systems um, that have come in over the past five years. I mean, Summit was a very kind of popular one in, in K-12 in, in the US. There's another um, big system that's used in Europe called Century AI. And this is software which literally just monitors what the student does in terms of online learning and then makes recommendations for what they should do next. Sounds like a very simple kind of, you know, but you think about it, that's a really kind of high level pedagogical decision that a teacher would normally make based on all sorts of different variables. But we're now passing that over to, to um, software. We've got automated essay grading, for example, um, which is used a lot in the SATs in, in the States. Um, and I'm really fascinated by things like natural language processing. So when all of a sudden you may have noticed that Google Docs is beginning to complete the sentences for you or suggest things you might like to say, there are um, kind of... Uh, software packages now that will do whole paragraphs based on a couple of words you type in. So if I typed in Donald Trump, it might come up with a whole paragraph, which I could then use to, you know, to scaffold better writing. That's fascinating. And then just to finish off with, there's a whole bunch of very, very low level decisions that are being made for very kind of narrow things. In Australia, we had a company that was pushing automated registration, class registration. We call it roll call in Australia. But in the beginning of the day, who's in the classroom? You tick off the register. Facial recognition can do that in two seconds. Um, similarly, um, there are systems now that monitor whether students are making appropriate use of their devices. And there was a big furore a couple of months ago about um, online exam proctoring. So students taking online exams in their dorm rooms, some of the systems were completely automated and it was checking eye movement and object detection just to see whether the students were fully engaged in the exam or whether they, they were perhaps uh, behaving inappropriately. All of these things are creeping in and on their own, each one of those little things possibly you wouldn't notice. But if you put it all together, we're suddenly as teachers and students in environments where a heck of a lot is being delegated to machines. And there's a whole bunch of questions there. It's brilliant because it can save us a whole bunch of work we might not want to be doing. But there's a whole bunch of other things you might want to be pushing back on, saying, hang on a minute, there's more to this than just, you know, kind of a, a very kind of basic decision being made. These are actually quite important parts of what it means to teach and what it means to learn. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. And I do, I think probably various listeners might have had those moments where, it, there's good and bad. Like you're save, you're seeing time saved, and then there's moments where Google's filling in the rest of my sentence, and it's right. And I'm like, oh wow, um, how much am I here, and what's what's the future? Or, or it's filling it in, and it's a bunch of racist stuff that you would never come up with. But it's that's what it's getting from its its training data. Um, so yeah, you have to be super aware um, of it. And this is why we talk a lot now about AI literacy or algorithmic literacy. This, these are not necessarily technologies that we're actively engaging with. These are technologies that are being done to us. So you have to have another kind of level of awareness of what's going on. And you've got to have the time and energy to push back. 
it's very easy to say, oh, fine, I'll go with that grammar suggestion or I'll go with that word. Who cares? It's just a, you know, it's just a kind of, but that's, that's a kind of slippery slope in some ways. Yeah, I, I do want to, you know, I guess it gets back to the first thing we talked about, about the question of, you know, should robots replace teachers? And in a way, what you're saying is that on a very micro level, there's a should robots replace this? Should robots replace this? Small little functions um, that these questions that we're sort of answering with voting with our feet or whatever you want to call it to like by just starting to adopt them and just take them as for granted. Um, what are we, where are we really going on the whole? So by jumping ahead, if you will, to teaching to a bigger, much bigger thing, it, it does make you wonder like which, which part of it, which part is essential and which part will people, you know, for, for anybody asking the question, which part is the, Oh no, not that part. And I guess, do you have any guidance on, you know, either frameworks or ways you think about it to help people as they think more about these tough questions um, about which part of teaching really shouldn't be replaced um, or should be, should we have the most discussion about maybe is another way to put it. Yeah, no, I've got heaps to say about that. I'll, I'll give you five answers to, to one question. Um, the first thing I would say, just winding back a little bit, is often these technologies are not adopted by teachers or students or parents. They're adopted by administrators and managers. And so those are the customers of a lot of this technology, and that's who these technologies are being pushed to. So from a managerial, institutional, administrative point of view, it makes very good sense to adopt a lot of these things. Whether teachers are choosing to use them or not is, is another question. So, I mean, that's, that's the first thing. The customers for these things and the end users, and often the end users these technologies are designed for, are the people that are buying them, the people with the budgets, the administrators. So it's a very different set of values and a very set of different needs. So this comes back to then the question, yeah, where, where, where do we draw the line? And, and in some ways, the, these technologies, the questions about these technologies are questions about what we think education should be and what we think education is for. It's a value question. So the, the example of the automated uh, class registration software is really interesting. So from a tech point of view, it saves about two and a half hours uh, a week of teacher time asking is Johnny here? Is Jeff here? Is Susie here? And from a kind of organizational point of view, you can tick all the boxes about efficiency, time saving, accuracy. You know, teachers aren't making mistakes. Students can't get away with calling for their friends. Yeah, it sounds like, a good, like. Yeah, it sounds like a good thing. You talk to teachers, which no one does, and the teachers are saying, yeah, in a way, it's a pain to have to do this. But actually, that 10 minutes at the beginning of the class is a moment that's really pedagogically generative. I get to read the mood of the room. I get to make sure that every student's there and I get to interact with them as a human. I get to actually acknowledge their presence and have an interaction with them. And I can gauge what type of mood they're in. And if I can see that Jeff's looking a little bit angry or disengaged, I can factor that in, have a bit of a... So from the teaching point of view, it was a really important part of the day. And they were saying, I don't mind having to spend 10 minutes doing this. But from an organizational point of view, and in terms of a tech solution, it was a big problem. So it's really interesting to kind of do a 360 on these and think, okay, even if these things are useful for some people, where might the problems lie? If it's useful for you, who is it a problem for somebody else? And so there's always this duality. 
And the hype around all this technology is it's a support. It's not going to take over from you. It's just there to be in the background to give you a push, give you a bit of a help, lift well, you up a bit. And to make your job better, right? Isn't that even yeah. further than just to, it's that way you have more time to spend on the good stuff is often yeah, what I so, hear. Exactly. So teachers can spend more time doing the high level stuff and all this. Now, that in some cases with some teachers, that's definitely going to work. So if I've got a piece of software telling me I think next you should make your students do this because this is where they're at and this is what mood they're in. As a high status older teacher, I can push back and say, no, actually, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, it might work for me, but if you're a, a, a more junior teacher just in their role and you've got your manager saying, I can see that 20 times out of 25, you've ignored the system. You can see how that might be reversed to say that this teacher isn't actually kind of following advice or doing the right thing. So there's always a flip side. So that what works in one situation may not work in another. And there's a very fine line between being guided and being directed or being assisted and being actually told what to do. And because teachers are in such a kind of they're in such a hurry, they've got so many other things to worry about. There's so much pressure. Nine times out of 10, it's easier just to say, what is the system telling me to do? That's what I'm going to do. And my worry is that you get this kind of de-skilling. Teachers' professional judgment gets kind of pushed to the sideline. Teachers don't have the time or the energy or the institutional support to push back and say, as a professional, I'm going to disagree with this. And you don't get robots replacing teachers, but you do get teachers working like robots, just following instructions. And then you lose, you're on a slippery slope then. Why do we actually have to train teachers for four years and pay them so much money and so much healthcare? Couldn't we just get a person in just to kind of do what the system tells and make sure the classroom doesn't kind of completely disrupt? And then we don't really need expert professional teachers anymore. That's where we could end up. Or we could end up in this happy go, like, you know, teachers all doing the amazing pedagogical work and all the drudge work is being done behind the scenes. But what people like Bill, Bill Gates actually used that phrase, drudge work, and he said things like homework, the things that teachers find drudge. And for a lot of teachers, homework is a really important pedagogical thing. Marking a kid's homework is really kind of, you know, it's a, it's a pedagogically generative moment. So my worry is that um, a lot of the drudge work, which is actually kind of the human, emotional, empathetic work that goes around the edges of you know, learning outcomes get stripped away from the classroom and it becomes even more dehumanized. So we really need to make a case for what's the added value of having a human expert professional teacher in the room. And that's really difficult because te a lot of teachers are quite, I would say, um, I'm not sure if this is the word you'd use in the States, they're quite cocky. They're quite kind of self-assured. Oh, of course, it's obvious why you'd need a human teacher in the room. The problem is a lot of the tech companies are making quite persuasive arguments that teachers are not great that teachers are making mistakes teachers are over unionized they're too expensive they're fallible that this technology can do a better job so unless the teaching profession steps up and makes a kind of vocal case for having expert professional trained teachers in the room my worry is that in some circumstances we'll start losing that that employment opportunity and the workforce will just dwindle so why do we need human teachers that's the big thing that we need to kind of make a big case about over the next 10 years really interesting i also have interviewed over the years people who are making some of these robot tutor ai software systems especially in the tutoring world there's there's been a lot of work as you mentioned in your book about you know tutoring systems that are actually at this point pretty robust and pretty you know they've worked on these things for a decade or something, you know, sometimes, and they're, and sometimes they're very specific sets of knowledge where there is a right or wrong answer, like a math 
you know, early math where a lot of students struggle. And it's, so I, I wonder, you know, one of the arguments I've heard is that for some subjects and for some um, situations that these can really improve outcomes and be more, um, you know, the argument is that they're more, um, it's, it's an equity and access issue because right now, um, at least in the United States, I know that the best teachers are not are often not in the worst schools, right? The the kids who might need it the worst are not necessarily getting the best teacher, and so the the argument, just to the really to the point in a way you made, but one argument is that these these systems could could actually be some so, somehow an equity engine, and I wonder, you know, what you would say to to those arguments and this body of research that that's trying to make that case. Um, yeah. That- no, I mean, I mean, pedagogic, pedagogical agents have been developed over the last 50 years. So there's a very robust kind of set of um, computer science and learning science that's been developing software agents that will pop up in um, online um, kind of tutorial packages and give students advice or support or guidance. And it's very sophisticated now. So you haven't just got, you know, I don't know if you remember Microsoft Clippy, that kind of paperclip. I I am old enough to remember that, yes. It looks like you're trying to write an essay. Can I help you? I mean, it's moved on a lot from that now. So they've got all sorts of interesting things where perhaps there's two different pedagogical agents on the screen that takes different roles. You know, they start arguing with each other and then getting you involved in the argument. Um, There's a kind of um, dumb companions where you actually have to teach the, the pedagogical agent what to so there's some really kind of sophisticated stuff and also in pedagogical agent um, development now these systems are becoming smarter and smarter so they're becoming much more um, able to kind of detect or infer emotion um, or motivation um, and they're also designed to follow you around as well so they're not just system specific so these are kind of really interesting stuff what i think is interesting about this field as I am actually super sceptical about it, as you can imagine, it actually seems to be taking place in very specific areas. So the military, for example, use these pedagogical systems quite a lot in terms of training troops, for example. One of the most interesting examples I've seen, successful examples, is is a software package that will help you learn how to kind of mend um, kind of uh, boat engines, ship engines. So if you're in the Navy and you're in the middle of the Pacific and the engine breaks, you're going to need a tutorial on how to break, how to mend the engine. There's no one there to teach you. So these there's, no, are, there's no internet lifeline. Yeah, exactly. So these things are actually super useful for kind of high level, very technical. As you say, you have to do these particular things. They're very procedural. And I think this, is the, this gets to the nub of these, these sorts of systems. They're based on this one-to-one tutoring model and this idea of self-regulated learning. And a lot of these systems follow this model where, actually, wouldn't it be great if I had the best tutor in the world telling me what to do, this kind of Aristotle, Socratic method of having the best person in the room? I think this is based on a very narrow idea of what teaching and learning is that reflects the nature of the people that are developing these systems. It is a kind of very engineering model of how one might learn math or how might one learn science or engineering where you do kind of have one-to-one tutoring. There's a right answer, there's a wrong answer, and you're self-motivated and self-regulated to really get going. And the people that design the systems tend to have had that kind of experience of education. And people like you and me who've done pretty well at education tend to think, yeah, I'm pretty self Now That doesn't work for a whole bunch of other people. Um, I was reading last week in Frank Pasquale's book about MOOCs. And he, um, Frank Pasquale's written a really interesting book about robots. Um, but he was saying the reason MOOCs failed was they were very good at giving information. 
very bad at motivation. And I think a lot of these systems, you're right, you can get high level instruction into the hands of students that wouldn't normally have it. So there's kind of an equity win there. But learning is a lot more than just one-on-one and being self-regulated. Learning is a communal, a social activity, a conversational activity, something you do together. So you're missing out on all of that. And the equity argument only goes so far. We can have a, I guess the argument is we we can't get the best teachers in these schools, but we can get some pretty good software. Well, that's not good enough. My argument is we need the best teachers in those schools. And this is where it comes back around to what we were talking about at the beginning. This is a all, these are all questions about values and politics. Now, me saying we need the best teachers in the schools to teach the, the students that need them most is a really kind of political kind of stance that is going to take a heck of a lot of you know policy change, reinvestment, a complete rethinking of the American education system. So in some ways, it's a very idealistic thing. It's much easier and probably more effective for the kids in the classrooms at the moment to get a decent piece of software in. And it's good enough, you know. So my danger, my argument is that if we have just the good enough tech solution, we miss out on those more difficult political questions about why aren't our schools good enough to have good teachers in the first place? So it becomes a bit of a kind of halfway house, better than nothing, but not as good as it could be. But that's my own kind of value system. Someone else might say, well, hey, you know, let's just be practical about this, get this stuff in and it's better than nothing. But if you look at how this technology is taking place in um, sub-Saharan Africa and other developing uh, low and middle income countries, you can see how systems are actually just being literally parachuted in. All of the lessons are pre-scripted and it's this kind of classroom or school in a box model where you don't need professional teachers there. You just need someone to turn it on and go through the script. And that, I think, is a very slippery slope. So I would also look at what's going on in other parts of the world to see where we may be heading if we go too far down the route of saying, yeah, there's a tech solution for social issues in schools. There isn't. There are social solutions for social issues in schools. Yeah, I guess what do you think is the your the, the takeaway you most hope people come with? That Do you think we should be having a conversation about robot teachers and whether we should have robots teaching we should have a conversation about what we want technology to be doing in education uh, and what the results are going to be so i guess the takeaway is that this is all contestable this is not going to happen it's not inevitable there's this idea that we think well the technology is coming we may as well just make the best of it we have choice we have agency this is a discussion this is a conversation that we should be having and the conversation isn't necessarily about the technology But as I said before, it's what we want education to be, what we think education is for. Where does this technology have an added value? And I think um, I conclude the book and a lot of people actually are making this argument that we need to find ways of making the best uses of this technology that can genuinely augment what teachers do, that can be complementary. We need to fight, I think, on getting complementary automated systems that can work with teachers. The technology isn't superior and the human is inferior. But the technology could be a really useful participant in a classroom. And so, again, Frank Pasquale talks about rather than saying artificial intelligence, we should talk about intelligence augmentation, IA, as opposed to AI. And that's a really interesting thing about thinking about it, because where, where would technology augment the intelligence of a teacher? And I think really we should try and work out ways of getting our teachers up to speed with professionally having kind of awareness and understanding to push back against the technology, but also work with the technology. I haven't got a problem about using AI to do real drudge work that has no pedagogical value at all. So if you're trying to get me to count all of the, cl- all of the chairs in the room, 
brilliant. Get facial recognition to do that. I couldn't care less. That's not going to help me as a teacher. But don't get these systems to do pedagogically generative work. And some of that pedagogically generative work is stuff that doesn't seem so important, like taking the roll call. And last of all, if I'm going to spend billions of dollars and have loads of PhDs working on this, try and get the tech industry to develop technology that can do genuinely amazing things that can't be done already. Don't just make technology that just does stuff that already happens just slightly quicker or slightly cheaper. Try and develop AI that fulfills this promise of the killer chess move that no human would ever think of. What, how would that look in the classroom? What could technology do that is not already being imagined? That's really interesting. And that's possibly disruptive or innovative. Do you have an example of that? I'm just really interested. No, if I did, I wouldn't be talking to you. I'd be a billionaire. But you hear these AI developers talk about, you know, the, I think the chess idea or the Go, and they had a, a program that beat the, the kind of the world's... And they said at one point, the program just made a move that no one and none of the chess masters would even imagine taking place. That would be really, really fascinating. And that it would take decades to find. But that's where technology might then begin to be transformative. If all you're doing is just, you know, helping me tell kids what they should learn next, we can do that already. <laughs> we don't need technology to kind of take that away from humans. But there, there's possibly stuff out there that might be a bit more. So that's a challenge to your, all your listeners. If you can come up with that, I probably want 20% of your, your profits. What has COVID done to the path of of the development of, of kind of robotics in education, both AI software and more physical robots? Well, I think all the discussion we've just had about AI and robots is super interesting. It's actually then really interesting to think about, I think, how much little difference COVID has made to attitudes towards ed tech in K-12. I think there's a big difference between K-12 and higher education. So I'm really surprised. I mean, there's so, so there's super excitement amongst the ed tech community and ed tech industry that COVID was the tipping point and post-pandemic, everyone's going to just suddenly start getting a hold of all this technology. I'm not seeing that in Australia and Europe, and I'm not seeing it reported so much in, in the States in terms of K-12. People seem quite happy to go back to face-to-face -face teaching as quickly as possible. And they've actually learned the value of a human teacher and a physical school and a physical classroom. So if we're trying to have these conversations about why do we still need schools, why do we still need teachers maybe that's your answer why are we so desperate to go back to k-12 schools what's interesting i think though is perhaps in higher education i think there has been a bit of a tipping point and i'm seeing more uh, enthusiasm for um taking up online learning um and it's not just zoom either um in higher education so i think we're going to see increased uh, appetite for hybrid learning for flexible learning some universities may well fully go online and more prestigious ones will stay face to face. I mean, you had an episode a few weeks ago from Purdue where people were talking about we're in a kind of limbo, a weird in-between status. The teachers and the students are, but I think the administrators can now see the business case for actually having online lectures, online courses, online options. So it's really interesting how these technologies are being taken up. And under the radar comes all the automation. So people are you know, Zoom lessons and you know, learning management systems, but you've also got things like online exam proctoring. You've also got things like automated essay grading is coming into these platforms that's being sold to higher education. So I think that's going to be the, the kind of game changer there. K-12, I can't see making a difference. But what is interesting is the ed tech industry is getting super excited about what they call direct-to-consumer ed tech, not selling this stuff to schools, but selling it to parents and families. 
So I think you've got middle class parents now and middle class families that suddenly can see the value in their, in their eyes of taking some of these products on. So you've got the, the private online tutoring, which I think, again, you were, you were covering in a previous podcast. Even things like Epic Books, for example, are now selling kind of home subscriptions. And we can see these these technologies being pitched to parents, which is interesting because this automated teaching um, is going to really come come big there because parents aren't going to be too bothered about whether they're the teacher or not. And it may well be that we get this kind of class of students that are going home and engaging with all sorts of automated learning that some of their classmates are not. And that worries me from an equity point of view because a teacher in the morning is going to have half the class will have done advanced you know, nuclear physics on, on a MOOC or whatever and the other half yeah, haven't. So I'm a bit worried about that. So yeah, direct to the consumer. So families and universities, I think, might start taking up a lot of online learning options, which has AI baked into it. Um, so these are discussions, actually, it's not just about schools. Um, it's not just about universities. It's also about families and, you know, society as a whole. Well, thank you for sharing this, 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 all your thoughts today. I really appreciate it. No worries. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you a future-looking conversation like this one. If you like the show, please do take a minute to rate or review wherever you listen. I know all podcasts say that um, because it does really matter. Or tell a friend about the Ed Surge podcast on social media or in person. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, please subscribe to our Ed Surge podcast newsletter at edsurge.com. The link is at the top right. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. Those news clips that you heard at the beginning were from CNBC and from CNET. Music this episode by Tom Waxham. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.